coming up on Art Palace. This painting here actually is pro is a protest. They are breaking the law. <laughs> um, and to be quite honest, it's not really peaceful. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Irig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Christopher Miller, Director of Education and Community Engagement at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, well, I've been at the uh, National Underground Railroad Freedom Center for over 14 years. Um, I started my journey there through an internship, uh, which turned into a position. My first staff position was as a historical interpreter. And then uh, in, I started that in 2007. And in 2012, uh, I was moved into manager of program initiatives. Uh, and so that's where I did a lot of uh, community engagement activities, uh, connecting with other institutions as well as educational institutions as well, um, other museums. Uh, and then uh, I was moved into a director position uh, at the beginning of early in this year. And so I have a a wealth of experience working in museums, but as well as with the history surrounding the Underground Railroad. So what year did you start as an intern? I started as an intern in 2004. Um, but I actually, so uh, what I was, it was, I was a first person interpreter. Uh, and it was through the Northern Kentucky University, which I am alum of. Okay. And uh what we did was I was able to do the research and I could pick whatever character I wanted to portray uh, within the museum. Uh, and so the person I selected was a man by the name of Reverend Jermaine Wesley Logan, who was dubbed the King of the Underground Railroad for assisting over 1,500 fugitive slaves to Canada. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, did the research, was able to find him um, as a research assistant with the Institute for Freedom Studies uh, at the university. And um, I built... Uh, a monologue around his life. And uh, the first time that I performed that monologue was uh, for the first Black History Month um, for the institution uh, in February of 2005. Yeah, when you said 2004, I was thinking, like, that has to be right around the time it opened, right? Was yes, it- yes. So we're about to celebrate 15 years. Uh, we opened in August of 2004. Okay, yeah, that's what I was thinking. So what was that experience like giving that monologue? It was very, uh, given that I, I wasn't uh, in the drama department, okay. <laughs> I tell people I've been acting a fool all my life, but <laughs> acting, you know, per se, um, it was quite intimidating. It was challenging for me. Yeah. Um, Dr. Daryl Harris, uh, oh, who's yeah. still at the uh, at NKU. He's great. Uh, he did a fabulous job with me, uh, took me through, I guess you could say, drama boot camp. <laughs> I was mad at him for a few days as well as, you know, happy, but he worked with me um, constantly. And so um, even though with all that hard work, I still didn't feel I was prepared um, because I was nervous. But I remember probably about a month out and I remember I was in the course of doing the monologue and I looked over and there's this woman, she was crying. Oh, wow. And I was like, wow, 
I'm a part of that emotion that she's feeling from the story. And so I understood that my insecurities that I may have stepping in, you know, in period costuming um, in front of the public, uh, that was, you know, insignificant. The story is what's significant. Mm -hmm. Uh, Making sure that I poured everything that I needed to do into making that experience meaningful, um, making sure that it was real for those that were um, listening. Um, and matter of fact, it became our very real because people would ask me, are you really a reverend? And I was like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> and they would ask me questions afterwards, you know, pertaining to the character yeah. as if, you know, it was that suspension of disbelief, you know, that they're actually back in uh, the 19th century. Wow, that's great. You mentioned that you did historical interpretation. Yes. And that's an interesting, it just, it triggered something in me because, uh, you know, I have interpretation in my title as well. And it's mm-hmm. a big thing that we do here. I guess it's, it's like art interpretation seems a little more like, well, of course you have to interpret art because it's a little less nailed down. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was fascinating to hear that you sort of have to think about history in that same way, really. So like, mm-hmm. what does that, what does that mean really, uh, to somebody who doesn't know, like what does historical interpretation mean? Well, the interpretation can take on many different forms, very similar to what you do here with the artwork. Uh, we have the Times Feelings mural, mm-hmm. um, which often I'm called upon to interpret uh, that particular piece. Um, and so we talk about, we use visual culture, talking about the elements of the human element being at the very top of being of great significance, the human element towards the center uh, of the uh, artwork being of great significance and also looking at the people's posture um, and various different things and what kind of message the artist is trying to convey. Mm -hmm. And so we ask that with questions. You know, we want to say, well, what do you feel when you see this? One of the most compelling image uh, in that Times Films mural, you see an infant child being held up by one arm uh, by someone who looks to be a slave trader. Mm -hmm. And you see a mother reaching out for her child. Um, You know, that tends to evoke a certain emotion uh, to our guests when they see that image. Uh, And so to ask questions. And so it is sending a message. So we want to make sure that uh, through the interpretation that they're having that understanding. Uh, When it comes to history and historical interpretation, that can be done in several different ways. You can do it with first person Mm -hmm. where you're dressed as. You can do it in third person uh, where you um, are speaking about a famous character. Um, You can also do it through facilitation to where uh, you're probably setting up um, a first person interpreter to come out and you're kind of setting the stage. Let's take you back to, you know, 1834 uh, and so forth and just providing context uh, for what the guests are about to experience. Yeah. When you mentioned having murals and I know you have artworks in the museum as well. It's, you know, I guess I'm so used to being here in our museum where we have really only one mode, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right. We've got one way of doing things and that's through art and that's it, you know? Um, So it's kind of interesting because you, you have a much more open toolbox almost to get to sort of play around with. And, you know, you were just sort of describing the different, some of the different things in that toolbox, so that's just, uh, I don't know, what are some, some other ways that the museum has sort of told that story? Uh, well, we use, we do use art. 
Um, we also do it through exhibits, uh, artifacts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have one of the largest artifacts uh, within the region, and that is the uh, John William Anderson slave pit. Yeah, uh, 80-plus percent of it is very much authentic, um, meaning that the wood that you can actually touch um, very well could have been someone who was brought there in irons, uh, enslaved, mm-hmm. may have rest their hand or their head right there. We made a conscious decision not to put any barriers between mm-hmm. – um, the guest and this artifact, which, you know, in museums, you tend to when something is authentic, it's behind glass and and so forth. But uh, we wanted to, we felt that this was too important um, of an experience. We wanted to take the risk in having it more available and accessible to our guests so that they can touch the wood so they can get real close to it. So they have the understanding that um, although this is a artifact, um, there's a human quality about it because human beings were brought into that structure for a means of, you know, as property, chattel property to be bought and sold, men, women, and children. Uh, and so we interpret, you know, artifacts, we interpret art pieces that we have. Um, and so what we try to do is we try to create an experience. And I think that's what all, uh, I would I would implore all institutions will try to do. You just don't want to just have a visit. No, we want you to have an experience. Yeah, the slave pen is definitely an experience. I think it's it's one of the most powerful parts of the museum to me. And, and I think you're right that allowing visitors to walk into that space is one of the most amazing parts of, of the museum. It's just such a, how, how many people I can't remember would, would, would fit. Yeah. Um, upwards to 50 to 60, yeah. um, women and children kept on the bottom floor. Men were chained to the top floor. Uh, it was in two floors and, um, the entrance into the actual slave pen is that we take our guests through is actually the fireplace. Uh, mm-hmm. And so at one of my interpretive responsibilities, I was the man in the slave pen and I would dress in costume and people would walk in. And my first line would be, uh, although you have come through the fire and now you are here, do you know where you are? I said, although you come through the fire, meaning that what people walk through was the fireplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have that understanding. Do you know where you are? I want to make sure that people understand understand that although it appears to be a cabin or a house that's not what this is this is a slave pen not a house mm-hmm. not a cabin and so from that moment that sets the tone so they have that understanding of where they're at um, so they have a sense of place um, and and so then and also to understand within the interpretation that this was only 50 miles away from where we are where it is now situated um, and so a Keeping in mind that slavery was very much a part um, of this region, Mm -hmm. you know, as it was nationally. I think about it in almost I think about it in terms of art in a way because I can't shake that. But the way, you know, it does relate to the body very directly in our relationship with it, Mm -hmm. you know, in the same way I might relate to a piece of sculpture and have that sense of how it connects with me as a person. I think one of the first things we pick up on uh, when we're looking at something is, am I bigger than it? Is it bigger than me kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And so when you give people that context of how it relates to their body and how that related to other people's bodies, I think that's a really powerful thing. And I think, so I can't help but shake it as like a a kind of object in that same sort of art way that is experienced. But 
you know, with the help of that context too, makes it such an amazing experience. Absolutely. I would say, you know, artwork and artifacts that really connect with the human spirit uh, really resonates and is much more meaningful um, in my opinion, um, than pieces that are kind of void of connecting with that human spirit. Uh, so regardless of who you are, uh, what you look like, where you come from, um, trying to identify yourself, uh, within, uh, that artifact or that piece, keeping in mind, because when I tell people, you know, I say, um, mothers, Fathers, sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters were brought here. They were bought and sold. Um, so when I put it in the context of family ties, mm-hmm. regardless of who you are, where you come from, you can identify with that. Um, you know, being either being a father, a mother, a daughter, a son, or a brother or sister. And so hopefully um, by putting it in those universal terms, it will usher in uh, the necessary empathy and understanding that you need to have uh, in interpreting um, the exhibits. It does make an immediate connection. How do you establish empathy uh, with within, uh, with your guests that come in? Because they're either one, well... You know, it's so old, it happened so long ago, or mm. it's the issue of, well, you know, um, I'm not like that, you know, and I'm not. <laughs> but it's, it's to understand that we are all benefiting from people who were treated in this fashion. When we talk about American enslavement, um, it was a machine. It was an economic machine that benefited the entire country. And it laid an economic foundation that we are still benefit from today. So at least it's our obligation and responsibility to have a greater understanding of that institution and also the social realities that we are still dealing with the residue with. Do you have any other favorite pieces, objects, experiences in the museum that, you know, you've in your long history there with them mm-hmm. that you just sort of look back on fondly? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, our escape gallery, I think, is is outstanding. Uh, that's 10 where we take our children into. Mm-hmm. Um, I like sitting on the steps of the replica safe house that we have and just engage students into conversation. Um, we, and we talk about um, try to make a part of the interpretation is taking something that's very complex, mm-hmm. but making it very real and understandable and relatable uh, to our guests. And so within the escape gallery, we have the safe house where there are different uh, compartments where people would hide uh, underneath the, the stairwell, underneath the floor floorboard behind cabinets places where I'll, I'm a big guy so um, I wouldn't be hiding in any of those places <laughs> um, but you also have a false bottom wagon which is very uncomfortable uh, we have a replica of, of Henry Brown's box Henry Box Brown um, he was 5'10 200 pounds and we have the dimension of the box and sometimes students and, and also adults will get in the box so they can just feel how how confining it is mm-hmm. but with that, I the the overlaying message is isn't amazing how people confine themselves in these uncomfortable places for the hope of being free, mm-hmm. and so freedom is a process, and so any ambitions that you may have, any desires that you will have, or your dreams and your goals. Keep in mind that there's a process and there are some things that you have to do to do the things that you want to do. And I think sometimes 
we it's wonderful when we can take the lessons of our ancestors and use it to propel and motivate um, young people and adults into the future. So what's uh what's coming up or what's going on right now at the Freedom Center that we should know about? Oh, well, um, we are just finishing up um, Mandela Journey to Ubuntu. Um, that's coming to a close um, uh, at the end of February. And uh, we are uh, kicked off our Freedom 55 initiatives uh, that deals with the Freedom Summer Project of 1964, uh, where a group of students were trained at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, uh, to uh, for voter registration, to go down into Macomb County in Mississippi, uh, into register uh, voters. And so what we're doing is uh, for the remainder of the year, uh, we will have programming uh, dedicated uh, to that history. Uh, we will have uh, lectures. We will have community conversations. Uh, we will also have some um, music uh, involved as well. And so we have a, a nice breadth of programming um, that we will do uh, all the way through this, uh, December. Great. Well, if you're a game, I thought we could go look at some art right now in the galleries. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's go. All right. So we are standing in Gallery 119, and we are looking at a painting called The Underground Railroad, which is appropriate, uh, by Charles T. Weber. And I wanted to get your take on this painting, and it turns out you've actually, you were pretty familiar with it because you've used it uh, in teaching already, right? Yes, absolutely, in uh, some cult, uh, cultural competency training. So what, uh, explain what you kind of did with it in, in that instance. So uh, basically, I simply do a Google search, okay. Underground Railroad of Images, uh, and there are two images that will pop up. Uh, one is the Charles T. Weber um, image, and there's also another image. Um, the difference between the two is that uh, with Charles T. Weber, you see as far as white abolitionists uh, helping um, freedom seekers, whereas in the other image, you will have black conductors mm -hmm. helping freedom seekers. Um, and also the elements are a little bit different. Um, this one, as far as the Charles T. Weber, it's very calm, relaxing. It really is void of the tension and danger it is in being a conductor on the Underground Railroad in the other image um, actually conveys that a little bit more strikingly, um, just from the posture, but also with also the the lead person holding a gun. Yeah, <laughs> that shows <laughs> Where, you, yeah. Absolutely. So, so you have the element of danger and risk, um, but with the Charles T. Weber um, painting, um, you really don't have that. You know, when you look at it, uh, you don't see as as far as like, how serious and how dangerous and how risky uh, the enterprise of the Underground Railroad was. One of the reasons I wanted to to look at this painting with you is because I think we all know that it has lots of sort of problems, like mm -hmm. in, in sort of historical terms. Um, and um, I, I don't know, what, what what are some of those that stick out to you right away? Well, um, one of the things that 
I've learned when it comes to visual culture, uh, the human element at the very top is very important. And so, um, and it gives great significance to the painter. So at the very top is Levi Coffin or an image of Levi Coffin. He's um, at the highest point human element uh, on the actual photograph. And then at the center, um, is an uh, image of or replication of his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and the man in the middle um, looks like he's holding his back. He has a stick. Looks like he's struggling. Um, and what it, it conveys, what the problem it conveys is, is that it's showing that this individual is helpless, mm-hmm. um, that he is definitely in need, um, and then you get into uh, the dynamics and nuances of a white savior complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Underground Railroad comprised of many diverse people, white, black, women, men, um, but w- most of the Underground Railroad activity took place by individuals that looked like the ones who were freedom seeking. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so those were the black communities uh, in here in Cincinnati. Uh, you had several different wards, but you had settlements like Little Africa, Bucktown, Little Bucktown. Those communities were very instrumental uh, in providing a gateway to freedom for those that were seeking freedom crossing over the Ohio River. Yeah, I think it, when you, you you nailed the sort of compositional uh, focus of this painting right away, I think it's really clear when you look at it that we have this, the focus becomes on Levi Coffin and his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the things the eyes are drawn to immediately. And especially like you pointed out, just by literally putting him, sort of uh, putting Levi at the height of this composition, um, he is, it's almost like he's on a pedestal um, in the painting. He's mm-hmm. he's poking out higher than anyone else, so he naturally becomes the focus. Um, and I think there's also a specificity to the faces that you can tell he's painting a portrait of them in a way that he like the elderly man that that Catherine is escorting. He kind of reads as a caricature to me a little bit. Like I mean, maybe he's based on a real person. I'm not sure, but it just doesn't quite have the same kind of specificity that and and it's not true of all of the all of the black faces in it i think some of them do feel specific but they aren't necessarily people in the same way that we can identify like Catherine and levi coffin are you know absolutely they're they're somewhat in the shadows out of focus um you see the one woman with her her child uh she's she's very striking um but she comes in between, as you said, your eyes gaze to Levi Coffin because he is the human element at the right. top. And then you're drawn towards the center um, with Catherine helping um, the older um, black gentleman. And then so everything else is kind of even their eyes. If you look at their eyes, their eyes are moving inward towards that center image. And one woman I said that's even striking. She's looking in that direction. Exactly. So your eyes are going to be drawn in that direction as well. Yeah, that's that's it, it's interesting because I do think it, it it's an interesting composition that I do think actually Levi or um, Catherine and this man are are kind of the focal point of the painting even though Levi is higher. I think that interaction is what becomes the focus of the painting by those eye lines that you just kind of pointed out. Um, and then I actually kind of, when you come to this image, that's usually the first thing I notice. And then I kind of creep up to, to, to Levi after that. Um, 
What about traveling at this time of year? And and you you mentioned the difference of the the two paintings that you you use. That the other one is is was you say it was more like summer feeling or warmer? Yeah, or, or they were in uh, a different region okay. uh, to where right. uh, it was warmer climate. Uh, so as far as with the winter, one of the things. Uh, as a researcher, as a fellow, I should say, with the Institute for Freedom Studies, uh, I committed two and a half years to researching subscriptions from runaway slave ads. And one of the things that we were coding was the time of the year that people were escaping. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you did have uh, more um, escapes taking place during the late fall in the winter um, just because of daylight. Um, the days were much shorter, so therefore you could use the night for cover as you were traveling, and then during the day you would hide. Um, so what's compelling about this is um, I start to wonder what time of the day <laughs> is this taking place? Yeah, uh, You know, it doesn't appear to be at nighttime. I'm seeing, seeing as far as light being cast upon the snow and whatnot. So I would have to say that this is early in the morning, um, possibly. Yeah, uh, it, it, see the little, I, I feel like that's what's being conveyed through the pink light mm-hmm. on the snow that we're either seeing a sunset or sunrise. So yeah, that's sort of where I'm reading it, it, it the shadows. It's a little vague though. Right. Yeah. And so um, the, the best practice is by this time, this individuals of freedom seekers should already be tucked away in hiding. Yeah, it's too bright. <laughs> <laughs> you know, by this yeah. standpoint. Um, and so being out, and so the element of, so even if they are out during this time period, this is a serious element of danger. And I'm not seeing danger being communicated uh, in this picture. Because um, I think sometimes, you know, the painter, uh, we kind of look, sometimes we look at history and we're very nostalgic about it. Um, and we sanitize things as well and so and when we do that it lives on and so you have this like oh they're helping but really this is dangerous you have laws Levi Coffin and Catherine what they were doing in other conductors on the Underground Railroad they were breaking the law they could be jailed they could have been fined Um, and so you have conductors like uh, John Hatfield at Mount Zion Baptist Church right here in Cincinnati Ohio Um, he wore a overcoat um that had six, I'm sorry, seven compartments to where he could get to seven different pistols. <laughs> now, he is a deacon of a church, yeah. but he understood the gravity of the seriousness if they are caught. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, too, as living, um, being a person of color living in the state of Ohio, you also had a different set of laws. You had black, you had black codes, and one of those black codes were that... Uh, those of African descent living in the state were not lawfully allowed to be, have guns, to own guns. Oh, really? Yeah, that was one of the black laws. So so keep it in mind, just that element of danger, um, which I feel is void in this pain, in this very, a critical part of the Underground Railroad. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting, I mean, we kind of talk about it, and I've definitely looked at it before in terms of, like, an it's obvious white savior message, but I never really thought about that, that it's also sort of selling Catherine and Levi short on being like, these 
total rebels too. And sort of by focusing, yeah, it, it, it does sanitize it to a point where you, like you just said, that it doesn't have that sense of them being lawbreakers, you know, that's like, it's, it, which is kind of sad because it's like, well, that's a really, I mean, that's a, that's a sexy bit of storytelling there too, so that well, they're well, missing yeah. out on as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's the truth. I mean, you can look into Ohio legislature and look at the books and, and look at um, the laws that were set, um, especially uh, after 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 uh, came into play. So you would actually, uh, you know, you had um, sanctioned marshals who were, their job were to capture runaways, mm-hmm. um, um, whether that was right after they crossed the Ohio River or going up to Canada, uh, before they cross over into Canada, I should say. But yeah, this painting, it brings a lot of elements. Um, I know the setting is supposed to uh, be in Cincinnati as well. I look at the the housing in the back, um, and so um, I tend to wonder, okay, where's this location at? Um, and, and as well as you do see the snow, uh, as we talked about, uh, you see the hay, and you just see... You see the number of faces. And also, too, what's a rarity is the amount of people that are escaping. <laughs> so, All in one group together. Correct. Yeah. Um, there are accounts of people escaping um, in large numbers, um, but they are few and far between. Um, the more consistent, regular escapes took place with either one or two or three people. Um, here you have multiple people. We have about at least about what eight, nine, possibly ten uh, individuals. You have um, children um, as well, uh, which makes that journey complicated um, because children, um, not necessarily having the understanding of how dangerous it is, they may wander away. If you have an infant child, uh, that that child um, making noises and things of that nature. Now there is a wonderful story, Cincinnati story, about a group of twenty-eight that escaped from Boone. County through the streets of Cincinnati in a mock funeral with the assistance of um, Deacon John Hatfield, Levi Coffin, and also another uh, conductor by the name of John Fairfield, uh, who came from a Virginia slaveholding family who was very uh, anti-slavery. You know, I think that's a great example of a story of of freedom seekers who are telling a, a really compelling story that is not quite so focused on white abolitionists too, that you just told. And mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things we sort of, it, it, it kind of bugs me about this painting still is, is that it's like, uh, I mean, I, I think it's fine like to look at in, as long as you can sort of pick apart those things right. too. And one of the things that is a little disappointing to me, I guess, is when you said, you do a Google image search and this is like one of the first things that pops up, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Which is both like, well, I guess it's good our collection is out there and well-known, but um, I also have heard, and I'm I'm not sure exactly um, if this is still true, but that this was a really commonly requested image for school history textbooks, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? And, and, And so it's just a problem because we're thinking about it, you know, talking about this is not, like all the things that are not historically accurate about it, but you know, you remember those images, right? Like they right. Can, they can they stick in your head, and so even if the text below the image is correct, this image still has us. It can get into your head, and it, it can stay there. And it's like you, I remember paintings from my 
textbooks as a kid and things like that. And I maybe it's just because I'm a really visual learner that I remember those things. So every time I look at this painting, I always point out like this is made years after the events it depicts, right. you know? Well, we live in uh, currently a visual culture, um, you know, uh, seeing images they do speak louder than words. Uh, and so that's very, very important. I will say, you know, that with this particular image, is it, it was used as far as in textbooks. I grew up in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, and as recent as 19, the, well, no, I'll take that back. Early 2000s, my daughter, um, my oldest daughter, she was in school, and she wanted me to look at her history textbook. And it said that the textbook stated that the Underground Railroad was started and maintained by Quakers. So knowing that Levi Coffin was a Quaker, right, and this being used in textbooks, that image would feed into that narrative, which is a false narrative. Right. <laughs> And so, and so keeping in mind that this image would go very well with that false narrative about Quakers creating the Underground Railroad and maintaining it, um, you know. Um, and so I'm not surprised that this would be in high demand. I'm not surprised that is, is, is one of the um, images that pop up when you do a search about Underground Railroad. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think what you, you sort of pointed out in the differences between the, the sort of two images that you use to teach with, that this one probably is a lot more comfortable for people, right? Like, this is a lot more comfortable for people to sit with um, and to look at. And so when somebody's even making that kind of choice of which image they include in their textbook, they might not even be thinking about it on a you know, on a really deep level, you know, they might just be going, oh, this is a nice image. I like this. And not necessarily running through all the reasons that it is nice to them. You know, I think we make a lot of those, we, in, we intuitively make a lot of decisions, but then when you really break down why something is or isn't comfortable with you, there's actually like a lot of reasons behind it. So I kind of feel like all of those things that you're, you're talking about are kind of conveyed here and we pick it up really quickly, even if we don't know we're picking it up really quickly. Right, absolutely. And, and you know, it would be interesting if this image was next to an image of Eric Green and Colin Kaepernick taking a knee mm-hmm. and seeing what kind of emotions would be evoked by having that image because though they are taking a peaceful stance protest, it's amazing to see how people feel about that image oh, yeah. and about what they're doing when this painting here actually is pro is a protest they are breaking the law. <laughs> right. Um, and to be quite honest, it's not really peaceful. It's not supposed to be peaceful because of the danger that is right. in, uh, in play. So it's amazing to how our emotions go when we look at certain images. And yeah, once again, there's, there's a, there's quite a bit that's problematic about the painting. Um, you know, and, and maybe, uh, a contemporary artist might be inspired to, to you know, actually do take do their take on the Underground Railroad, um, and to have an image and to do the research and have the understanding of what was more commonplace when it comes to the Underground Railroad. 
So yeah, that when you mentioned that Catherine and Levi Coffin are breaking the law, it reminded me of Charlottesville mm-hmm. and the way that I feel like there was a lot of talk afterwards of going, but permits, you know, like people wanting to bring up these like nitty gritty details of legality um, in this situation. I kept just being like, who cares about like permits? We're talking about big moral issues here. And it's like, you keep getting into like, the the fine print of legal issues that are just uninteresting to me at this moment. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking about really big, important moral issues and you want to get into the nitty gritty. And it's like, why do you want to get into the nitty gritty? Like, what is it you're protecting? You know, like what is it you want to protect when you do that? You know, I think those are the questions. Well, that's because we, we feel a bit of comfort in, under the delusion that laws are just. And, but when you actually look at the history of our country, laws have not been just from the very outset. Laws have made race mm-hmm. a priority over being just. Um, you know, you can look at the state of Ohio. Ohio became a state in 1803. The first piece of Ohio legislature were, were the black codes. So at the infancy stage of the Ohio becoming a state, deciding to be a free state, the first piece of legislation that they want to enact deals with race. Mm-hmm. If you are considered a Negro or mulatto, which were the terms, you had different set of laws and restrictions that you had to abide to. In 1807, it included good behavior. It included elements of all, as well of, of escaping. You had to find two people to uh, va- uh, validate uh, your character and put up a $500 bond. You know, we're talking about in 1807, $500. So we like to have this narrative where we forget the legalities and how that restricted uh, the policies and how they restricted access and opportunity, especially for people of color and for individuals who were helping on the Underground Railroad. They were indeed breaking the law. They were indeed um, could be fined and jailed. Uh, So uh, we need to understand that (laughs) the government or laws haven't always been on the right side of history. Um, They've been exactly on the opposite side. And so when you go back to talking about Charlottesville and you're talking about permits and like, yeah, what really, what what is more significant? The moral um, value of what's being taking place or immoral value that's taking place or permits. Right. And it's also like, take the long view of history. You know, I, I, I have no doubt in my mind that, you know, people will be discussing that moment years from now, you know, like mm-hmm. people will be talking about that in history. And I don't think they're going to really be talking about permits, you know, they're not going to be getting into those nitty gritty details of like, well, this particular group had a permit, but this particular group did not have a permit. And it's like, it's irrelevant. And, and I think the point you make about laws, you know, the assumption of laws being just is, is a privilege that you can feel when a law has never been used against you. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Like yeah. if you've never had a law used against you mm-hmm. or, or see how a law is set up to be counter to you and your well-being, then it's like, it's easy to sort of just go, oh, yeah, well, 
It's the law. It's great. <laughs> right, right. It's like a stop sign, you know. This is just what it is. You know, you have to stop. And, um, it, it, and so we, we want to challenge people to really to critically think about things. Think about laws. Think about policies. Think about the dynamics of history. You know, when you look at this painting, um, you know, why does your eyes gravitate towards, you know, this? Is this an accurate uh, a, a painting depicting the Underground Railroad. Is this something that is common to the Underground Railroad experience? From my opinion, it is not. And so that's what makes it problematic. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so, but you can use this piece to engage in that conversation to think critically. Um, and so that people can research, people can investigate, people can have greater knowledge. And so it is useful Keep it in mind, it's useful. Um, it is a brilliant and, and beautiful painting, um, but for educational purposes and for understanding of the social realities, you know, um, it takes some work in doing that. Yeah, and I think it's 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 like everything. Like, none of this exists in a vacuum, you know? A lot of people want there to be sort of this just objective idea of art that they can just look at and say, and try to divorce it from context you know there, mm -hmm. that's a big thing with a lot of times when you and probably less so with works like this but a lot of times when you start talking about works that are a little more challenging for people a lot of abstract works and you try to give the sort of historical context behind them and say well this is what's what was happening at the time this is what this was a reaction to and they go well I shouldn't need to know all of that but it's like even when we're talking about works like this it's the same thing they don't exist in a vacuum so it's important you know when you ask me what year was this painted? It's important to note, yes, this is was painted, you know, I think it said 28 years or something. 1893, I believe. Yeah, so yeah. I think it said on the label, let's read here. Yeah, it said 28 years after the Civil War's end. Now, the, the, the thing to think about in 1893, you also want to put in context, what was the country like in 1893? So what's compelling about this as well is also the year that he was created. So when we talk about, you know, Confederate monuments um, and when I've been in those discussions, I always ask, well, when was this statue or when was this monument actually went into production to be yeah. created? People forget, it was like, okay, this was during the 1920s, the 1930s. Well, what was the country like in the 1920s and 30s to where they would really have an understanding about Confederacy? So the same thing with this. In 1893, what was going on in the country uh, for this artist to depict the Underground Railroad in this way? Um, this time period is during a time period which many black historians or uh, historians of black studies will call the nadir of African-American history or the nadir of race relations. The nadir means the lowest point. It means the decades of disappointment because during this time period, you had the emergence of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, you also had a great deal of lynching mm -hmm. taking place. You had the emergence of people like Ida B. Wales who was... Um, communicating, telling the world about the lynchings that were taking place, uh, hundreds of black and brown bodies just hanging from trees, and it was the social norm in many communities. It was nothing to see the swinging of black bodies and people having eating food and their children are around. Um, it was very insidious behavior, but it was commonplace throughout uh, the country. 
And so you have this in 1893, you have this going on, you have the convict leasing system, um, which a lot of people say it's slavery by another name. Uh, and, and so you cannot, uh, you must take the production of this painting within the context of the time period of what's going on in the country as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think this was a great conversation. I'm so glad you came out today to to have this with me. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure, and hopefully uh, I will have the opportunity to come back again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have your own conversations about the art. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are Paris 1900, City of Entertainment, Art Academy of Cincinnati at 150, a celebration in drawings and prints, and Giorgione's La Vecchia. Escape to the City of Entertainment this month during Art After Dark, Passport to Paris on Friday, March 29th from 5 to 9 p.m. Enjoy free admission to Paris 1900, live music from the Faux Frenchmen, dance performances from Madame Gigi's Outrageous French Can-Can Dancers, food for purchase from Urbanstead Cheese, Macaron Bar, and the Terrace Cafe, specialty wine from the Skeleton Route, and docent-led tours with Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and also join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. And as always, please rate and review us. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. 